in your Bibles to that text in 1 John that was just read. We're continuing to move through the book of 1 John, even in this time during Advent, because uh, Advent is all about uh, looking at the coming of Christ. And this section in 1 John is all about uh, the coming of Christ. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles for you on the round tables. Pick one up, uh, grab it, take it, read it. You can get up now. It's totally fine. Um, but uh, yeah, so it, it, this section in John is dealing with the coming of Christ. Uh, I was studying it on Wednesday morning, and I'm reading about the last hour, and I'm reading about Antichrist. At 12 o'clock that day on Wednesday, I um, had the opportunity to go to lunch with Jonathan Keenan. Jonathan Keenan's been doing college ministry here for the last semester. And it's been great having Jonathan here because he always asks me, when I ask him to preach, what do you want me to preach? And so I say, okay, well, I just give him the next text. I I just happened to schedule him on all the difficult texts in 1 John. So I go out of town and I get him in the the place. And so I was Wednesday, I'm studying, and I'm thinking, last hour, Antichrist, Jonathan. <laughs> so I said, Jonathan, I need you to preach on Sunday. Uh, it's a great text. It's a doozy. It'll be uh, just, just for you, just the kind for you. And, uh, and Jonathan, um, he said, I have staff training. And so here I am. <laughs> here I am. He left me behind. <laughs> Did we get the slide up that says audience laugh? No? Did we get that? Okay. Let me, let me pray for, for us. God, we, we laugh... Um, We laugh, but, but your word in, in, in many respects is complex. And there are all kinds of um, there are all kinds of distractions that people ways in which we can approach it that are, are distracting uh, that keep it from being about us. But Lord, your word is for us. And you, you want to speak to us and meet us in your word. And so now I pray that you would meet us. That we would not be curious about some information, but we would be captivated by your presence as you promise to attend your word with your very living and active presence. And so, wherever we are in our relationship with you and our concerns and doubts about you, convince us that you are there, that you are not silent, and that you are loved. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a lot here, and so this is how we're going to break it down this morning. We're going to talk about the concern, we're going to talk about the clock, and then we're going to talk about the consolation. 
The concern, the clock, and the consolation. That's for you note takers out there. I'm not going to reference that. Again, it has nothing to do with the sermon really. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Uh, But first, let's talk about the concern. And the concern goes like this. Um, When I was in college, I got to spend a whole year studying in Austria. And it was one of the most formative times in my life. Uh, I did lots of amazing things. I skied the Alps. I took a course on Austrian cuisine. I ate lots of bratwurst. Um, I learned some German. And I also developed some very deep and meaningful relationships. During that time while I was there, I started a Bible study, and a number of unbelievers who I had developed relationships with came to that study. By the end of the study, uh, I had people wanting to meet with me for coffee. As we met for coffee, they began to tell me about these experiences of grace, of meeting God and Jesus Christ through this study. I was kind of blown away. One of those those friends who I grew particularly close to was named Joe. Joe was a good guy, But he began to realize that he had used his goodness as a way of keeping God at bay. That it wasn't so much his badness that was keeping him from God and Jesus Christ, but his goodness. And he began to see that that through that, that that was a sophisticated act of rebellion. Because he was trying to be his own savior. He said, well, if there is a God, then, then I think I'll be okay at the end because I'm a pretty good guy. I said, you are a pretty good guy, except for one thing. By saying you're a pretty good guy and saying I'll be all right in the end, you're taking the one office that God primarily reserves for himself, and that is Savior. You said, God, you get off the throne of Savior. I'm going to be Savior. And that's not a good guy. That's cosmic rebellion. And he got it. And the message of grace started to capture and captivate his heart. He got involved in a church when we got home. It was right outside St. Louis where I was going to seminary, and I had the opportunity to go and to drive an hour from my seminary campus one morning, and I saw Joe baptized. He ended up becoming a deacon in that church. From everything I can tell, Joe is no longer following Jesus. They went out from us, John writes in verse 19. The next semester, I had another friend come and join me. His name was Bobby. Bobby was someone I had known for quite a while. We grew up going to the same school together. I first got to know him very closely when I was his youth intern and he was in the youth group. I began to mentor him and disciple him there. Then I continued to mentor him and to disciple him when he graduated from high school and he joined me on staff. From everything I can tell, Bobby is no longer following Jesus. They went out from us, John says. I was talking with someone recently who was reminiscing about a very 
formative time in their Christian life where they were learning what it means to follow Jesus. It was during right around the time of graduate school. And as they were reflecting on this, they started to go through the names of the people who were there with them learning to follow Jesus. And as they started to go through the names of the people, you could see their countenance drop as they started listing off people who were no longer following Jesus. They went out from us, John says, My college minister, my Reform University Fellowship, RUF campus minister in college, went off and planted a church after that. After some years later, he had a moral failure. He was excommunicated from the church. He left his wife and family and those disciples that he had groomed and who went to plant that church with them, many of them, well, they're no longer following Jesus. They went out from us, John writes. What do we do with those friends, those family members, those disciples, and even those mentors who fail to remain? disciples, who walk away. It's a deep concern. It's a question that John is asking here in 1 John, because he's dealing with a situation in which people have gone out from the community to which he is writing. They went out from us, verse 19. There are people in the church and they have at one point in history left the church and they have gone out. Now it's very important to know what these folks have done. John is not writing into a situation where people who were Presbyterians became Baptist. John is not writing into a situation where people who were Anglicans became Methodists. He's not even writing about a situation where people who were denominational became non-denominational. John is writing about a situation where people abandoned the fundamental truths about Jesus. They are no longer following Jesus. And in that situation, it presents certain, it raises certain concerns, like theological concerns. Uh, What does this say about assurance of salvation? Can you lose your salvation? Can something actually separate me from the love of God in Jesus Christ? It raises theological concerns, does it not? What do we do do with that? Is it that you get in by grace but stay in by works? How does it work? Well, John seems to address those concerns in verse 19 when he goes on. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. John says that these folks who went out from us, he wants the Christians to whom he's writing to know that in a fundamental way, in a very fundamental way, they were never a part of us. In other words, John is saying that true disciples remain 
It's the same thing that Jesus said in John 8. He is speaking to a group of Jewish disciples of his, and he says this, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You see, the teaching of Scripture is not that all disciples remain. It's not. The teaching of Scripture is that authentic disciples remain. That those who are vitally in union with Christ remain. But there are many people who show forth some evidence of faith. The seed falls. There's initial growth. They even are... um, they experience the general operations of the Spirit. They maybe even gener- uh, experience some of the gifts of the Spirit because they are in the community of the Spirit. But they are not vitally and vibrantly united with Jesus. And John wants us to know that true disciples, authentic disciples, they remain. Now, there are a couple of dangers here, though, once you say that. The first danger has to do with the phrase that's very popular in Christian understanding, or that's very popular in Christian parlance today, the phrase, once saved, always saved. Now, there's a sense in which that that phrase is absolutely uh, right. Once you are saved, you are always saved, and Jesus does not let you go. But there's another sense in which it's, the way it's used can be misleading because it can suggest that you can have an experience at one time in your life and then it doesn't matter what happens after that. You're always saved. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that true disciples remain. In other words, the Bible teaches not so much once saved, always saved, but what I would call the perseverance of the saints. That those who are his, they will persevere. They will remain. But that brings us to the second danger. And the second danger is that we can view the perseverance of the saints as meaning personal progress in morality. Like that sanctification is one linear line and you just grow onwards and upwards, on and on and on and on. And everybody's life in here looks just like that, right? It's kind of how we teach it in Sunday school. That's not right. That's not how it works. And this isn't, uh, this isn't uh, perseverance as, as personal progress. What does it mean, mean to remain? If you abide in my word. That is, if you remain as one who continues to receive the gift. As you remain in faith. And faith is a disposition of moral and spiritual and every other sense of bankruptcy. See, a person who realizes that they are bankrupt and they have no capital, social capital, moral capital, any other capital that you could think of that puts them in favor with God in any way. Someone who realizes their moral bankruptcy, they look outside themselves for worth and value, for identity and meaning, for righteousness. And this is what John is talking about. John is talking about remaining in believing the word that you are loved and accepted and forgiven in Jesus Christ. 
and you remain in Jesus Christ by casting all that you are on all that he is. That is what John is talking about. See, uh, John, he addresses these theological concerns that it raises, but I don't think it just raises theological concerns when we see other people leave the faith. I think more, and I don't think that's the primary concerns that John is addressing. I think more than that, it raises existential concerns. And here's what I mean by that. I was talking to someone, and they had gone away for a little while from Jesus. They stopped following him. And I asked this person about that, and they began to tell me their story. I often ask people, what's your story? Tell me your story. And as they began to tell the story, this person grew up in a Christian school. They grew up in a Christian family. They grew up in a Christian uh, youth group. They had a tight-knit group, a uh, uh, group of friends who grew up the same way. And then, then they graduated from high school, and they all went their separate ways. They graduated from high school. They all went their separate ways. And many of their friends, many of their friends went off to college, and stopped following Jesus. At the same time, this person is off at college, and they're realizing, they're meeting all these people that don't even think that Christianity is plausible, much less follow Jesus. And as they start to be exposed to this, and they start to see all the people that are leaving, they have this kind of existential crisis, and the existential crisis is this, have I bought a lie? Is what I believe true? I mean, if all these people could walk away from it, and all all of them can doubt it, and all these people around me don't think that this is plausible, then, then I'm not so sure myself. That's the existential concern. That's the concern that I think that these Christians have that John is writing. How does John address this concern? How does John process these people leaving? Well, that brings us to the second point, the clock. See, I told you, the clock. Notice that when John opens, he says, children, it is the last hour in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. You know, in each generation, in every generation, um, there have been Christians who look around at the circumstances of uh, their culture and the surrounding environment, and they have said, Jesus could come back any time. It's the last hour. And John, he's writing in 90 AD or so. And he also believes that it is the last hour. And so what do we do with that? What do we do with the, the sense that each new generation, that people think that it's the last hour happened in the Reformation. It, I mean, I grew up in a chapel where people said, you know, your pastors believe that Jesus could come back any time. It's the last hour. And you're kind of like, okay, how can that be? Well, it can be because it's true. Wait a second. How, how could you say it's true? Well, it's true because you have to understand the Christian understanding of time. And the Christian understanding of time, the time that we are in, is not that time is going, progressing forward, forward, forward. The Christian understanding of time is that we are up on the edge of time, and we are running alongside it. And there's just one more thing 
that could happen. Jesus coming back. And so that means that we are always one moment away from the end. Think of it like this. How many of you, uh, think about last time you did a push-up. You've done a push-up? Any of you done a push-up? Ever or lately? You're doing a push-up, and think about this push-up you're doing, and you're, you're starting up, and you're going down, and you're going down as slowly as you can. I want you to picture in your mind's eye. I'm hoping to make you hurt. You are going to exercise just mentally right now. And you're doing this push-up, and you're going down, and I want you to get all the way to the bottom, and right before you hit the bottom, I want you to stop. Hold it. Hold it. You're right there. You're hovering. Your knees aren't touching. Your elbows aren't touching. You're right there. You're right there. How long can you hold it? I mean, at any moment, at any moment, you could drop out. At any moment, you could go another minute, you could go another second. You never know in that place. You know what I'm talking about? You never know how much longer you can go, but you know that you are one moment away. That's where we are. And we have been suspended at that place since Jesus' death and resurrection. Dear children, it is the last hour, and it continues to be the last hour, and that's why Christians have always lived in anticipation that any moment, any time, Jesus could come back, any time the penny could drop. And that's the disposition of the church that says, come Lord Jesus at any moment. And it doesn't matter if it has been 2,000 years since John wrote these words, it doesn't make them any less true today. We are living in that moment, at that time. Now, John, he says it's the last hour. Why? Look at verse 18. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, and now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it's the last hour. You see, John, he understands it's the last hour because the last hour is an hour of conflict. He speaks of this figure, Antichrist. Now, what do we know about Antichrist? Well, there's been lots of speculation about Antichrist, and lots of people have said, um, you know, uh, have tried to locate the Antichrist. It could be a Roman emperor like Nero, that's thought to be the Antichrist. It could be the Pope, or several of the popes, they've been said to be the Antichrist. Um, Every president, pretty much except for Ford, uh, past FDR, has been thought to be Antichrist, right? Uh, and maybe the, the two most plausible ones, my favorite, are Gorbachev, you know, because he had the mark on the head, which clearly it says that in this passage, will have giant birthmark on bald head. You saw that, right? It's, it's, in, a, it's in your textual notes down at the bottom of the page. Now, the, like, or Henry Kissinger, that's the other one, Henry Kissinger. Uh, lots of people, lots of speculation, but it's worth like saying with, you know, let's just step back and say, what do we know about Antichrist? Well, here's the thing that matters most. Here's what we know about Antichrist. It's anti-Christ. That there's a conflict. A conflict between Christ and Antichrist. And 2 John 
7, it says that the Antichrist is a deceiver who does not confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. In other words, the Antichrist denies the full humanity of Jesus, and it also denies the full divinity of Jesus, and therefore it denies that salvation is only in Jesus because we needed Jesus to be fully man to save us because he had to be fully man to represent us in every way, and fully God to save us. It takes someone who's fully God to save us because we needed someone who could overcome the powers of sin and death. And they deny these things, and so therefore they deny that Jesus is, Antichrist denies that Jesus is the Christ. That's what it is. And by the way, Antichrist, that term, is only used in the Johannine literature. So if you're going to develop a construction of Antichrist, I think that we need to start, start there and be very, very, very cautious if we go outside of that to understand Antichrist. Antichrist is not called beast here. Antichrist is not called man of lawlessness. All we hear is Antichrist. And that's what we know about the Antichrist. So what is Antichrist? Antichrist denies the full humanity of Jesus, denies the full divinity of Jesus, and therefore denies that salvation is only in and through Jesus. So who is Antichrist? You say, well, if that's the case, then Antichrist could be almost anybody. Exactly. In fact, it could be a lot of people. Exactly. That's why John is not so concerned about a singular Antichrist, but many Antichrists. Look in verse 18 again. You have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. And who are these Antichrists? They're precisely the people who left us. They went out from us. People who were members of the church, who were in the church worship service, who then left Jesus and started denying that he was the only Savior of the world, that he was fully God and that he was fully man. Do you know anyone like that? Well, sure you do. That's Antichrist. That's why I don't think it's the best thing to think of Antichrist. My own sense is that Antichrist is not so much one person, but a spirit, like it says in 1 John 4, 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is from God, this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. Is now already in the world. The spirit of Antichrist is already in the world and works itself out in people who deny Jesus, his full humanity, his full divinity, and that he is the savior of the world. Now, I realize that that might sound uh, strange, but if that is true, if what I'm saying is true, then that makes it all the, at one time uh, way less sensational, at the other time all the more applicable. Because Antichrist could be anyone in here, everyone in here, and people that you know. And so we all have to take stock. Because the point is this, you have to understand that Jesus brings an inevitable division in the world. Jesus came to reconcile the world. Jesus did not come to condemn the world. Jesus came that the world might be saved. 
But Christianity teaches that Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. That he is the only mediator between God and man. And if that is, either that is true or it is a lie. And you have to actually react to him. You either say that he is what he claimed to be, he is fully God and fully man and the only Savior, and you follow him, or you say, no, that's a lie. But it can't be one or the other. See, there is truth and there is a lie. Look in verse 21. No lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But the one who denies Jesus is the Christ. You see, from a Christian perspective, if you say that Jesus is not fully God and fully man and the only Savior of the world, then we consider that a lie. And if you don't believe that, then you consider Christians to be telling a lie. But there's no Switzerland. There's no neutrality here, right? You have to go one or the other. Now, I realize this sounds very offensive and odd in our context where we think that all of truth is, is relative and what's true for you and true for me, but you can't say that's just true for you and true for me because the Christian claim is an exclusive one, that Jesus is exclusive and universal, the only Savior of the world. You either agree with that or you don't. Now, you say, well, that's, that's kind of harsh. I mean, Jesus... That forces a decision, exactly. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, Oz, this isn't popular, but I, I want to be clear. If you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, I'm not angry with you. I'm not. Nor am I being antagonistic. This doesn't make me antagonistic or against you in any way, shape, or form. It's just... It's just stating a reality that we all have to respond to Jesus and we fall on one side or the other. But the reason why it's not angry or antagonistic is because deep down at the end of the day, I believe in a Jesus who loved his enemies and who died for us while we were still enemies, who died for Antichrist, for those who were against him. And so... There's no hate and antagonism. There's just the reality that Jesus either is the way and truth in life or he is not. And you have to make a decision about that. But Jesus, he did not come to condemn the world. It says in John 3, verse 17, For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. See, Jesus came to save, but if we don't accept him as Savior, then it automatically makes a division. Condemned already. Which brings us to the second thing about this hour. It's not simply an hour of conflict. It's also an hour of revelation. Look very closely at the end of verse 19. John says, They went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. 
they went out that it might become plain. John says that something is revealed and they're going out. Something becomes plain that wasn't plain before. That there is a revelation that happened. And what is that revelation? The revelation is that they were not of us. Now, to understand this, you have to understand that John believes, remember, that it is the last hour. And throughout the Bible, we hear about this day called the day of the Lord. It's the final great day of the Lord. And that day is a day of judgment and a day of salvation. And that day is a day when those who are really gods are revealed or shown to be really gods. And those who are not are shown to be not. It is a day of revelation of salvation and of judgment. But here's the thing. John believes that it's the last hour and that with the death and resurrection of Jesus, that that judgment, that that great day of the Lord has already come. We are living in the day of the Lord. It is the last day. It is the last hour. And therefore, proleptically, the salvation and judgment of God are already beginning to be revealed. And they will be confirmed at the judgment, sealed there. And they are, and John believes that it is revealed through these people leaving. It becomes plain. It it is the judgment becoming manifest. It becomes plain that they are not of us. In other words, their leaving is a revelation. Because in the present time, there is a sifting in the church that happens when people respond to the word preached. And they accept it or they reject it. And that reveals whether they are gods or they are not. Their response, in other words, has eternal relevance. And so when people are are separated, what's happening is that their true eternal colors are showing forth. The, uh, the beginning of the year is about to come, and in the beginning of the year, lots of people get gym memberships, right? And the gyms are always really crowded for January, for January. And February, things die off, and, you know, they gain a couple new people that kind of stick on. They gain a lot of new money, but they gain a couple more people that actually stick on in the gym because, uh, you know, for some people it's just an idea, but for some people they are committed. Deep down they're committed and it's there. And only time will tell. There's a sifting that happens in February, right? Uh, Now, it's kind of like that in the church, except there's only one difference, That's not two, that's one for you and one for you. There's only one difference, and the one difference is this. It is not an act of willpower that keeps us going. It is the fact that we are his. It is the fact that we are morally and spiritually bankrupt, and that we continue to recognize our need and receive and rest on him alone for salvation. See, this isn't pull your, who can pull themselves up by their bootstraps and have enough oomph to make it through February. This is who, by the Spirit of God, has come to realize that they have no resources in themselves, but that Jesus is all they could ever need or want. And they continue to rest in and cling to him.
So, those who fail to abide show themselves to be not disciples, not authentic disciples. But those who abide in the word, they are the true disciples, that true disciples abide. Now, I want to ask a question. How do you hear that? Do you hear it as a critique? Do you hear it as a judgment? Do you hear it as a warning? It can be all of those things, but that's not why John writes. John says this that he might encourage us, which brings us to the consolation. John writes this. John says true disciples abide because he wants his congregation who has remained to know that they are in Jesus. Look in verse 20. But you, but you, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Now what truth is he talking about here? Well, he's talking about not any and every truth. You don't know any and every truth and I don't know any and every truth. The truth that he's talking about is the truth that the Antichrist deny. The truth that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. The truth that Jesus is fully God and fully man and salvation is only found in him. That's the truth that you know. Uh, There's a... There's a story in John 9 of, of a, a man who's been blind almost all his life. And Jesus heals him. And the Pharisees come up and they start questioning this man, the religious leaders. And they start questioning, they're like, who healed you? And where, how did he do it? And where did he do it? And, and then, and then they, they start questioning him. And it's like, it, think about it with me. It's like if the Ivy League professors of the day started like drilling you about things, about your faith. And he's sitting there, and, uh, and he says, um, and they say, did this guy who's a sinner because he healed on the Sabbath, are you going ex- to accept him? Did he do it? And the guy goes, listen, all these debates that you're having about sin and Sabbath and all this, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But here's what I know. I was blind, and now I see. I was blind, and now I see. Do you want to become his disciple? Is that why you're asking me about this stuff? Because that's what I know. I know the bedrock truth. I was blind and now I see. He changed me. And you all know the truth. You all know the truth that He changed you. That He is a Savior. That He died and He rose again. And that you now have joy and peace and assurance and confidence because of what He has done. How? How do you know the truth? Well, he says that you are anointed, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. What does it mean to be anointed? Well, lots of people have different ideas about this, but I think the clue is in John's gospel. And Jesus in chapter 14 says that he's going to send a helper to his disciples, and he calls that helper the Spirit of Truth. And then in John 15, Jesus says that this helper, the Spirit of Truth, will bear witness about him, Jesus, who is the truth. And then in John 16, he says that when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. In other words, to be anointed is to have the spirit who keeps you trusting in, receiving, resting in, relying upon 
Jesus. Uh, Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians 1.21, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You have the spirit and because you have the spirit, you know the truth. You know Jesus. And because you know Jesus and because you have Jesus, you also have the Father. Look in verse 23. No one who denies the Father has the Son, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You have Jesus, you have the Father, you have the Spirit. And last week, um, Bob Nisbet came up and talked about the jail ministry. And he talked about the problem of recidivism in, in the jails, that, that people go back on average like 30-something times that he had known people who had been back in there 60-something times. You can imagine the anxiety that that would feel. Will I stay? Am I going to blow it again? But you know what? That doesn't just happen in the jail, does it? We all know that kind of recidivism. And it doesn't just happen with those addictions and moral failures and other things like that. It also happens with the doubts that plague us. And we keep going to that place where we think, is God really good? Is God really loving? Is God really for me? We ask that question, I ask that question a lot. I think it drives a lot of our behavior. Here's what I want you to know. Here's what John wants you to know. You have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What more could you need to abide? You have everything you need because you have God. And if he is for you, who can be against you? Let me pray. And God... Would you give us more of your spirit that we may know in confidence that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And for those in here who are not sure, who are skeptical, who are doubting, would you break every barrier down with your love so that they may say with confidence, I don't know everything, but this I know. I was blind, and now I see. He saved me. Prepare us now to come to your table. Amen.